I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas on NPR News. It's a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. Joe Milan Jr.'s debut novel is about immigration, but it's not a story of what it means to leave a familiar land and start over in America. This story is what it means to leave America unwillingly and start over in a foreign land. Bucky is a teenaged football-obsessed boy who has flown to South Korea and left to fend for himself. What he finds there is a part of himself that was long unacknowledged and a culture that is somehow both foreign and recognizable. Joe Mylan Jr. is an assistant professor of creative writing at Waldorf University. His new novel is titled The All-American, and he joins us from Forest City, Iowa. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. It's great to be here. So your book is so timely because right now, as I was reading it, I was also following the news of the two million American residents who are DACA recipients who are waiting anxiously to see if Congress is going to renew it. And these yeah. these young people live in limbo and somewhat like the character in your novel, many of them would be deported back to a place they never knew. So I wondered if you're following the what's happening with this legislation. I haven't actually been following this particular legislation because honestly, it's pretty tiring to follow all the different types of uh, immigration legislation that seems determined to deport people. Um, I think like for me, one, I recently there was a um, law that was proposed in order to fill a gap in one of our old adoption policies. So something that a lot of Americans don't realize is that if you're born before 2001 and you are adopted and brought to this, brought to this country, you're not automatically naturalized as a citizen. You have to um, go through a, 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 the application process. And for any number of reasons, sometimes parents neglect to do that. And they are left in this limbo because once they realize that they are not actually citizens, it's often after their visa is already expired. And that is breaking a law. And once you break one law, it becomes a snowball effect where often these Americans are in peril, sometimes deported, similar to what happens to my character. Yeah. You know, I didn't know about that till I read your novel. Is there, I mean, what, what, what is the trajectory of that policy? Is there any interest or movement to rectify that? Or is Congress pretty satisfied with that? Well, every session, it seems, um, there's a movement um, spearheaded by adoptees for justice who bring the law back. And um, I think Senator Kobachar was the one who proposed it the last time around. And it gets momentum. It looks like it's going to happen. And then it gets put on the cutting room floor for any number of reasons. And most of them are opaque. I think it goes back to this idea that if we bring these adoptees who have been deported back to the back to the US we would in a way be bringing back criminals because they wouldn't have been deported unless they had committed a crime and mm-hmm. so you have this absolutely insane logic where you have that or imagine you have someone who's been deported to a country where they don't speak the language they didn't grow up they don't have any connections they have no way of feeding themselves and lo and behold they commit a crime 
anything as simple as stealing bread or whatever, sleeping, sleeping on a park bench, and they would be labeled a criminal. And our laws state explicitly, like, we are not going to bring criminals to our country. And even if we put them in that situation. I, I think you've hit on... I think you've hit on something really interesting here. I, I don't think most Americans understand, A, what happens when younger people who, as you've said, have come in through adoption or have come in through DACA end up getting deported, which is something that your book explores. But I, I don't think a lot of Americans understand that most of these younger people who are being deported back to the country of their birth or their parents' birth or some connection have have violated basically nothing. And they're being sent to a place with which they have very little familiarity or no familiarity at all. I, is that right? Yeah. I mean, like some of the more um, well-known cases – um, oh, I'm, the names is escaping me right now, but, um, like one of the more publicized cases was this guy who was adopted and the, his adoptive parents were quite abusive and mm-hmm. he, and they never naturalized him as a U.S. citizen and they were abusing him and he escaped and his troubles with the law started with him breaking back into his adoptive parents' home in order to get just some of his stuff and the mm-hmm. parents called the police on him and he got um, a breaking and entering charge. Um, and once the authorities realized that this guy had broken that law and later he had gotten into like a bar brawl or something like that. And suddenly they, they decided like, okay, this is a guy who's a criminal. And we now discovered, you know, post nine 11, like all this stringent uh, citizenship checks, discovered that he's not a citizen, they decided to deport him. And by this point, this is a guy who had the beginnings of a family and thought he had left all this behind. And this happens. And the the scary thing is that we have a handful of well-publicized cases, but there are so many that we don't know. We don't actually know how many people have been deported. We have no idea. Hmm. And I... I didn't know about any of this until just a few years ago when I was living in Las Vegas and I was talking to um, a friend who also happens to be an immigration lawyer who was working with people coming, uh, undocumented immigrants coming over the border from Mexico. And some of the actions that ICE was taking was basically taking these people out of jails into dead of night and dropping them off over on the other side of the border um, without a normal sort of due process. And this was legal. And it's scary to know that, like, we have absolutely no idea how many people have been deported in this manner. Um, There was an effort in the late 90s, before 9-11, to rectify this. That's that's why people who are born after 2001 are automatically, and brought to this country as adoptees, are automatically made citizens. Um, At that time, it was one of the they proposed the law once it was realized and publicized that adoptees were not naturalized automatically. Um, they moved the law, I believe it was something incredible, like six to nine months from proposal all the way through Congress to it getting signed by um, then President Clinton. But they left this one loophole, which I'm not sure if it was oversight or it was a tough on crime type of thing where they were thinking that anyone who's already 18 by this point, I'm I'm not sure why that oversight happened, but it happened. And ever since then, 
multiple Congresses have tried to rectify that, and they have failed. You know, I, I don't want to miss what you just said about the lack of transparency about deportation, because as I was reading your novel, you kind of, you spark my curiosity about how many people who are living in America that this happens to. There is no way to get a definitive answer. There's just, it. I'm, there, there's a real opaque um, veil over how this happens and who it happens to. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's not just that. We don't even rightly know how many people this potentially affects. I mean, of course, we have the, right. the DACA rep- recipients, which are people who elected to, you know, go to label themselves under that. But we have plenty of people who I imagine, and I can only speculate, but they don't want to be identified because here we are. We don't know if Congress is going to pass an extension or do anything uh, about it. And do you really want to live under that specter? I mean, imagine this, you have grown up in America, you have lived an American life and you have a government who is telling you that that's not true. And you live under that specter. Like what, what does that do to your pursuit of happiness if you're always afraid of doing anything official? Mm-hmm. And I think that's haunting. And I, and I don't know. I think it's, I think it's absurd, and I think it's bananas to reject people who, who so desperately, desperately, and so often represent all the the lofty ideals of what it means to be American. You know, before we talk about the situation that your character finds himself in, I'm really curious about how you learned what it was like for a deportee. I mean, you, you've really done this magnificent job of capturing the disorientation so viscerally. So how did you, how'd you learn that? Um, well, thank you for that compliment. I didn't... Uh. I didn't do anything special other than I lived in South Korea with what was the equivalent of a green card, but I went through the bureaucracy of trying to secure that green card when I was living in South Korea. And it was always, it just blew my mind about how difficult these bureaucracies always are. And they're so similar. Um, I was later fortunate to also have to go through a, a, another rigorous process to live in the UK for a year and again, it was like I was submitting these documents that were like the size of a book. Um, this wow. this sort of disorientation, I just imagined like, what if I hadn't come here willingly? What would happen? And knowing that these governments, like we, I, I don't know why we assume that systems would be smarter than individuals. But <laughs> um, I've always carried, because of my own personal experiences, um, I have always suspected that the systems are just as smart or as dumb as the rest of us. And therefore, there would be this complete oversight where someone who is deported from the U.S. and has no history in the country of their birth, there is no apparatus to receive them. They walk in, immigration looks and says, okay, well, we've gotten this losses and I guess he's ours. Welcome home. And then they send him through, go get your baggage. But if you don't have any baggage, if you don't have anything, and it's not like there's any group or anyone that's there to receive you because you've been deported probably into dead of night. Um, yeah, you're just out there. You're just kind of wandering. Um, I gave more 
more of a heads up for my character in that because you just can't have a guy wandering around the airport. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I just, I, I just try to connect the dots based on my own experience with absurd bureaucracies. And um, later I found out from, from reading accounts of those who have been deported that it's not too far off base. Jeez. I, okay. So let's talk about what happens to Bucky because yes, you might've, given him some heads up. But like I said, I mean, on the plane, upon landing, he walks out of the airport in South Korea, and he's got nothing and really no one to rely on. I mean, this is really a moment that tests some teenage young idiot's metal. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't know anything. Okay, let's describe how he, how he finds himself in this situation, if you will. Well, I mean, I, I first want to point out that Bucky's not an idiot. He's just a 17, 18-year-old <laughs> okay, <I'm> guy. <laughs> but, I mean, actually, this also kind of keying on, like, one of the things that we always uh, attribute to um, to youth. We assume that, okay, because you're ignorant that you're dumb. And he's, he's not <laughs> – Fair enough. He's not – Fair enough. He's ignorant. And what he does is what – is, what does is he – what does he know? And he knows football. And so he incorporates right. – he understands the world through a lens of a running back and a running back is all about that grind. You hit the line, you just keep churning your legs and you try to fall forward for just a few yards. Maybe you break free and you score a touchdown or a first down or something like that. And so for Bucky, here he is in foreign territory all alone. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And he believes in all those bizarre things that coaches tell young men on on football teams and he's he decides like i got the grid i got the metal i'm gonna somehow go through this and for the rest of us we're looking at this at this character and thinking like no this is the moment you should be freaking out (laughs) (laughs) right right um but i also i i know that like some of the stupid things that i did in ignorance when i was younger and surprised that I made it through. But I think part of the reason why I made it through was because I was ignorant. I didn't realize how serious the the situation was. And so remembering that and reflecting on that and thinking like, okay, if I'm, if, if Bucky is doing this, where is he going to seek shelter? He's going to, he's going to go to the bathroom to a, to a toilet stall and he's going to collect his thoughts. He's going to do his mental rehearsal. He's going to, um, crawl his way through the dog pile and go to to the only thing he knows, which is one direction that his um, stepmother told him to go. And that's what he does. <laughs> okay, so w- one acknowledgement here. Can you tell it's been a long time since I've been around 17-year-old boys? Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't get the mindset. And I don't know anything about football. So this was um, enlightening. To me that, you know, his his love, his obsession with football ends up being a very valuable um, place that he can turn, right, to be, you know, to tap into his ingenuity and to tap into his determination. Um, was it always, Joe, I guess I'm curious about how the aspects of this character came together as you were thinking about the situation that you were going to put him in. So, so tell me a little bit about conceiving of this character. Um, so I, I, I had done some doodles about a character who gets um, pulled off an airplane and conscripted into the Korean army when I was living there. 
because what, what I think do you mean by f- doodles what <laughs> doodles, doodles meaning what? like <laughs> oh i just wrote some like um i wrote a scene of a of, of a guy getting pulled off a plane or and okay. he's on the bus going to the boot camp and he he doesn't know what he's doing he doesn't want to go there but um yeah and it was it was just something that i was just writing kind of offhand and i didn't think too much about it because it wasn't any good and um later i was teaching um american culture class at the catholic university of korea that was one of the things i used to have to teach and I use this text from uh, an Americanist named Robert Coles, who also, I believe, worked for the State Department. And he came up with this, the 13 values that Americans live by in order to help dignitaries and visitors from foreign countries when they came to the U.S. in the 80s to understand why Americans are so American. <laughs> and um, I was talk- I was teaching something about the accident of birth, and that's the belief that... Uh, Robert Coles proposed that we as Americans don't ascribe so much credit to where you're born, but where you end up. That, so this whole idea that you can bootstrap your way up from the very bottom to the very top. And that's in a very American sensibility that doesn't exist in a lot of other cultures. Um, and I was looking around my room and my students were arguing about uh, the military conscription. And I don't know, something clicked in me is what if what if a, one of these kids had been born in America and that's why they ended up being conscripted and pulled off a plane? What if this character embodied everything that we tell ourselves that it means to be American and yet something as simple as a bounce check on a naturalization paper ends up defining that he's not an American? Um, so from once I had that kind of notion, I went back and I started, I started working on, on this idea and everything about, uh, my initial conception of, um, Bucky or the narrator, because we find out later that he has many, many, many names. Um, he, everything about him, I felt would somehow adhere to those essential values. So why American football, um, I I played American football as a kid as most as most guys do but I'm not horribly infatuated with it. But <laughs> it <know>. is <laughs> but um American football is a uniquely is a uniquely bizarro sport when you think about it because um a lot of people have pointed out that when you look at American football it almost looks like a military exercise. Um, whether it's adhering to like commanders on the field, like your quarterback or, and being sent out there to, to risk your life and limb by, um, someone who has almost nothing to do with the actual action, like a coach or the boosters and all these kinds of things. And, but anyways, I started thinking like, okay, everything about this character has to be an embodiment of that. And yet there's also this reality where just because you believe in all these values, it doesn't make you necessarily an American. That is so interesting. Let me do this before I follow up on what you've just said. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas, and I'm in conversation with Joe Mylan Jr. He is the author of a new novel titled The All-American. And as you can hear us uh, developing the conversation, we're talking about the fact that his central character finds himself deported to uh, South Korea, uh, arrives is completely unfamiliar with much of the culture there, and he digs into 
his obsession with football as a running back uh, to really get him through. Um, you know, I've never thought of football that way until you just described kind of the militaristic dimension of it. But think about it. You are right that the coach sends young players in to be injured, sometimes killed on the field, and yeah. he is never is never going to experience that. And that is what's so controversial about the, a military draft, right? And sending yep. young people to, to war. Yeah, and I mean, the thing about American football that it's, it's so ingrained in American masculinity and we're, we're, we're not forced into it, so we're not like conscripted. But you're expected, at least at least my generation was expected like on the playground that you're going to play football. And no matter what the the teachers out um out on the playground would say or try to do, it it inevitably would turn into tackle. It would inevitably, you know, you wore those those bloody scars with pride, like you actually played the game like it should be. Um and I, when I think about like all the things surrounding American football, even like today, like you have this incredible pageantry, which really does mimic, um, think about homecoming, even the term homecoming for college campuses is about when the football team returns back home from what we, we assume was a victory abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, you throw these parades and you throw these celebrations over a, a football team where, you know, you know, the name of the game is multitudes of concussions. <laughs> and um, I don't want to disparage it because it is, it was an incredibly, in, it was, it was a fun game. It was. And, but at the same time, I often wondered like how much fun of it was that I was told I was having fun, that I was told mm-hmm. I was being um, American and manly. And because I shook the dust off that other guy or, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a game so centered around not only the the commonplace violence of the impact, but also strategizing that violence in a way that you outsmart the opponent and bloody them. Hmm. You know the way you were just describing homecoming. I've been doing a lot of reading about the Iliad and the Odyssey for a trip. I mean, it's it's got all the elements too of those great greek epic tragedies in it i I don't think we realize i don't think we i know i didn't realize how uh how many more dimensions i guess there are to it till you to talk to a smart author author and (laughs) he talks you through that (laughs) um okay i have a question for you and i don't want to miss this um when your your students, you said, were when you were at Catholic University in in South Korea, you listened to them debate military conscript, conscription. So everybody, is it men and women have to serve for a certain amount of time in the military in Korea? Um, all all men must serve men. either in the military okay. or some so, some other form of public service if they're not. Um, I'm, if they're not going into the military, some of them will volunteer work with the police. 
Um, other public administration offices, usually those are the <laughs> are the more highly pursued um, mm-hmm. forms of the public service. But every Amer- or every Korean man is required to do something. There are, of course, some exceptions, like if you're the only man in the family, and you know things like that, or there at least. Although those laws are always changing, I think I just read recently that it changed again so that even more people are expected because they're having population issues. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, the debate actually that day, I still remember this, was um, they were debating like, was it sexist? that only men had to do military service and women didn't. I was going to ask you that. How do they feel about it? Well, the the women said it was, and the men said it was, which you know that's that's not overly surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and I personally don't have um, a great opinion on that one because I feel that's outside of my own purview. Because the whole idea, it, it's also as an American living in Korea, even though I lived there for a long time, and my mother's family is from there, and I was in and out of the country for most of my life. I, it's really easy to forget that the consequences of living in South Korea are very different than the consequences of being a Korean American in America. So like when I got there, there was monthly drills where everything would freeze because the military needed to practice how they would respond to a North Korean attack. Mm -hmm. Um, I was there when the, when the North Koreans, um, shelled an Island during a a Kim Jong is a, is a day when, um, people in a community would get together to make kimchi and um, they shelled an island on that day. And, you know, thankfully everyone was down by the docks of that island getting cabbages and not at home because mm. a lot more people would have died. Um, the, I was there when the ship was sunk. Um, so the, the threat of war is much more real in a place like that. And so it's harder to make... I, I don't. I don't think it's really appropriate to make outside judgments when you're not truly part of that context. So I think I hear you saying that you you see military conscription overall. Um, you know that you might see it differently if you were a full time citizen of South Korea because of the ever present, yeah, idea of war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of the uh, controversies that were happening when I was there was that I mean, part of the one of the ideas that helped spur all this was, um, and a, a Korean American was pulled off a plane um, and forced to do his military, his Korean military service, even though he wasn't a Korean citizen. And part of the reason for this was that he was born and he was reported as a Korean citizen, and he never officially renounced his citizenship. And so when he was there visiting, um, he, on his way out, was just trying to leave. And the government pulled him off and said, no, you need to go do your military service, even though you're an American. Um, Because as far as we're concerned, you're in Korea and we think you're Korean. Therefore, you're doing your your service. Um, And that was partly enforced, not because that they were trying to pick on Korean Americans or anything like that. But it was because at that time they were grappling with this question of fairness, like rich people were getting, getting their kids out of their military service by any number of ways. 
usually usually using your influence to claim like, oh, well, this um, this person can't do it because he has a bad foot or this other person can't do it because he's in a pop group and he needs to go <laughs> do do K-pop stuff. And yeah. I mean, in the, the, so the the public got pretty upset because how could you ask all the lower social classes, you know, middle-class people to go do their military service and yet the rich people don't. Um, So that was kind of the context where that I think that if I remember correctly, that's where that debate started. And then, you know, someone threw out there like, well, it's wholly unfair because, you know, women don't have to do the same sort of military service. Mm -hmm. In your novel, Bucky does military service because he's required to do it. So how, I mean, who did you talk to? How did you find out what that military service is like? Um, because, wow, <laughs> yeah. you you didn't do it, right? No, I didn't, thank, thankfully. Oh um, um, but again, every... visceral kind of, yeah, wow, the descriptions. Go ahead. Um I just had friends that were Korean who all did it. Like every Korean man yeah. I knew had their, and that's one of those like, um, like we suffered. And so we're going to tell you about the crazy things I did in, during my, <laughs> my Korean military service. That's just one of those things. It's kind of like how we um, in America, like a lot of us share these stories about like, Oh, this time in college, I did this silly thing. Um, in in that same way, like I had a, I had a really good friend who, used to tell me that he had the unfortunate luck of being put into the paratroopers, which meant, you know, at, at first, when I first heard that, I was like, wow, you were, you were amazing. You were really fit. You were all this kind of stuff like that, because the way we think of, uh, of our military is, I mean, it's not quite hero worship, but we do view our military personnel like very, very, very positively. Um, sometimes absurdly so but when he was telling me like no you don't get it like i had to stay in the military like six months longer or nine months longer it was something like that and because he got selected to be a paratrooper and he said like yeah you know what i spent those nine months doing he was on the dmz um the demilitarized zone that's the zone between um um north korea and south korea and he was digging swimming pools so his <laughs> and with these small what? small what? shovels um because they had nothing for them to do and so yeah. the general one general decided like okay we need to so the story goes i mean this is my friend telling me so i don't know how true this is but um he told me that they spent like a month digging swimming swimming pools um and then that general cycled out and the next general said why are you digging swimming pools fill them all up um and <laughs> I've heard stories of like people who were truck drivers who had to drive all the way down to the South coast, um, pick up live fish and fish tanks and drive them all the way up for a special dinner um, for the officer's mess. And I mean, you hear all these like bizarro stories and um, the lighthearted ones are funny, but the, there's always this undercurrent of incredible amounts of abuse that occurred in those conscripted units because when you're stripped of so much power, even the power of choosing what you're going to do with yourself, you, I, I believe that you seek power in any way that you can. And so they used to seek it over each other. And so they would put Mm -hmm. each other through these obscene sort of punishments. Like the once on Pokyok is the, the thing where, um, 
it's like a it, it translates to something like a wonton bomber where you're supposed to be in this bizarro kind of like downward dog um, yoga pose, but you're not holding yourself up with your arms, but you're holding yourself up with your head and you're supposed to be doing this in the mud and you do this until you fall down and you have to do some other form of abuse or you keep on doing it. If you do something even remotely, not to par, um, a lot of those, I mean, everything I put in there, was something that I heard from someone else. Um, yeah, but my understanding <laughs> is that today it's not, it's not nearly as cruel. I, I hope. I, okay. Do you have your book with you? I do. All right. So, I've opened your novel too, and I've got the the uh, advanced reader's copy here, but I've opened it to page 166. And if you go down to the lower part of the page, I mean, th- this I think will give listeners kind of what you brought to this experience that B- Bucky has in conscripted service. This is such an interesting part of our discussion. I'd love to hear you read this, if you will. Okay. After dinner... In the dark, with tiny shovels in our hands, our squad takes turns filling sandbags with mud and running them up the hill and piling them on the top. I am running up the hill when suddenly my sandbag bursts. I look down and want to retire it, but the skinny sergeant is already marching up, pitching forward, voice booming. He comes face to face with me, yelling and spraying spittle. I'll get some uh, I say. Then I get down to do some push-ups. He grabs me by the neck and pulls me up and leads me off the hill. He's talking really quietly. Then he stops, and the only thing I can hear is the rain hitting the mud. I don't understand. I don't speak Korean, I say. The skinny sergeant cocks his head. He looks around as if maybe there is someone behind him. Then he turns back to me. Coach Shaw told us that in the army you must look men in the eye, even when you screw up and you don't know how you did it. So I look at the sergeant and say again, I don't speak Korean, douche nugget. He looks, or he looks around again, all smiles. Everyone stops and watches us. The sergeant yells and everything starts again. And then he kicks me behind the knee and I drop to the ground. Wansun pyokyok, he yells. The sergeant grabs me by the neck and pushes my head into the mud. Then he grabs my belt and pulls my butt high. Then... The sergeant calls over one of his minions, a lower rank sergeant, I guess, to keep an eye on me while he marches off in a hurry toward the buildings. After a while, what feels like 20 minutes, my hamstrings burn, my back shakes. I try to put my hands on the ground, but each time I do, the minion forces my arms back to their original position. I hold on. My legs and back begin to crumble, and I feel like wailing. When I start falling down to my knees, the minion pulls me back into position. The rain falls heavier. I try to think of something happy and fluffy, like sleeping between pillows and drinking warm milk. Think of refreshing showers and ice baths, sucking out the lactic burns in your hamstrings that now pull like two cords slowly cracking and splaying and separating in terrible smoky friction. And think of all those knives of cramps and rubber hammerheads of cramps. Feel that shaking, quivering. Joe Mylan Jr. reading from his debut novel, The All-American. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's my Friday book show. Um, Can I ask you about the decision that 
that you made to go to South Korea and get the teaching job at Catholic University. And was there a time when you thought, you know, I could spend a significant part of my life here doing this? Or did you always know that you'd be returning to the U.S. at some point? Um, I... So what happened with me was that I originally went to Korea. I mean, I went to visit family when I was growing up. And after I graduated college, um, I, my, my parents had a health emergency. And so rather than continuing on my normal American life like I had planned, I, I went back home and helped. I helped them through that medical emergency. And one of the things that they had me do is um, they, my mom asked me to take her to South Korea to visit. And when I was there, I was thinking, like, here I am, I'm Korean-American, and I can't speak Korean whatsoever. Um, <laughs> I, grew up in the, I grew up in an era where um, if you had any sort of speaking difficulties um, at a young age, they told the parents, like, don't teach the kid two languages, only teach them one, and that's, of course, going to be English. And so as, as a young man, as a Korean-American who always had to answer that, that silly question, like, where are you really from? Um, I thought, well, I don't know very much about this at all. So I, th I decided to go and I taught, uh, I was fortunate. I got to teach with a British company out in uh, South Korea and I thought I was just going to be there for a year. I thought I would learn Korean and then, you know, have my fill and come back home. But, um, that was, that was 2007 and 2008 and a recession hit and, mm. I was looking at my prospects in America and I was looking at my prospects in Korea and Korea was where all my opportunities were. And so I stuck around and I moved from that company to one university and then later another university. Uh, they helped fund my graduate school. They gave me um, the sort of opportunities that I was always told remained exclusively American. Um, mm. And they helped me pursue, I guess, the American dream. And I guess the, the real reason why I came back was I really wanted to write and I wanted to write well and I wanted to keep on teaching at, the, uh, at universities. And I knew that I would have to return to the U.S. to go to some sort of like a PhD program. And one that I really wanted to go to decided that, hey, you're writing. We like your writing will pay for you to come back. And that's how I ended up back in America, to be honest. If, um, if the University of Nevada hadn't brought me back, I don't know if I ever would have come back. Wow. Did America look pretty different when you returned? Yeah, <laughs> I came back in 2016. <laughs> so um, it was in that year, um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton actually did one of their debates at, at, at my school at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And at that time when I landed, like, I hadn't really paid too much attention uh, about everything that was going on in America. Because when you live abroad, um, you're more concerned about things that are going to affect you immediately. And for me, I had very few American friends. Um, and when I got back... A lot of things. I missed almost the entirety of the Obama administration and hmm. seeing Donald Trump. Like I thought it was, I, I, I 
thought it was ludicrous um, that, you know, the guy from the, what was, it was like Burger King commercials and the apprentice was going to be um, <laughs> running for president. And then, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was, it, it was very different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not just politically yeah. did, did American values um, look different? What kind of a different perspective, I guess, did you bring to the, you know, the mythology that we tell ourselves about America? I think um, when you're an American abroad, you are always, you're always cognizant that you're an American abroad because people will always remind you. And often in social settings, if if people are drinking, especially, well, it's inevitable. Somebody's going to come to you and tell you everything that is wrong with your country um, and how it interacts with the rest of the world. And you are you are forced to to really negotiate that, not just because you're a representative, but, but something happens where you realize that hey, we're there are a lot of good people here, and you know what? I don't think our values are so here's the thing that i always try to explain i i think what makes americans so upset and the reason why we're having so many issues right now is that we are understanding and we're being honest that the values in which we believe ourselves to be one people an american is counterintuitive to a lot of our actions and Mm -hmm. the idea of equality for example is something that every american would agree to and yet when we talk about like equality of education like somehow people don't seem don't see how unequal our education systems are so how could someone be equal if they're not even given the opportunity to be um mm-hmm. and that that goes against this whole idea of of the accident of birth as well, which I mentioned earlier, which it shouldn't matter where you're born. You should be given a shot at this, at, at, at becoming all that you can be. Um, the thing about Americans and that I found even when I was abroad and being like the lone representative in many rooms is that we complain about these things and we grapple with these things only because we have hope that we can change it. And that is something that's considered ludicrous in most other cultures, that you can actually change it without doing something like radical. Um, we, really? oh. we truly believe it, and that's what makes us so mad. I know that's what makes me so mad. When I think about people clinging to rooftops of trains, crossing deserts, smoldering in like container ships, fighting to get here, I, I think by and large, those are the people we want. Um, I never understood why Americans like, like at least American policy seems so much more willing to throw some bombs at a place rather than try to welcome some of these people who are seeking refuge. Um, don't, don't you, don't you think that it is, it is a, maybe a lack of interest or awareness about what it really takes to, to make that decision to leave somewhere and then go through what you've just described. If you're coming up through the southern border, I, absolutely, I think it's, it's absolutely right. It's a blur, right? Of just those are the people that do that, and they really have very little in common with the characteristics that I possess as, as an American. And yet, 
what you've just said is like we would hold up those qualities and characteristics that led them through that gauntlet as as high principles of American character if we thought about it. Absolutely. I mean, imagine this. Like you are raised to be a farmer. I mean, here in Iowa, farming farming is a big thing. Now, imagine that it, your best prospects for your family is to go halfway through the world, halfway across the world, riding on rubber dinghies or clinging to trains mm-hmm. or crawling through deserts in the dead of night, hoping not to disturb a snake, and to end up someplace where you're hanging out beside a hardware store hoping for day labor. I mm-hmm. imagine what, has, what would it cause any one of us to make that decision for our families. And then we have a starting point of like, what should we do about it? I'm, I'm not a politician or a policymaker or anything like that. But I imagine that when we start coming from a place of empathy and think that these are people who are willing to work that hard to get to another place, I think that would change a lot of our policies. Because right now, we're just the idea that all these DACA recipients won't may be deported and these are people who are willing to even be open enough and trusting enough to say that they're not yet citizens i mean that takes that takes a level of courage that i think that we don't often recognize i wanted to ask you about something about adoption because that that is an element of the story, and we talked a little bit about it at the beginning of the conversation. Um, I interviewed uh, writer Shannon Gibney uh, not too long ago about her memoir, and it's a memoir about adoption and her kind of coming to terms with her origin story and then her adoptive story and then who she is today from that. But one of the things that Shannon says is, you know, Americans are are really comforted by the adoption story that says, yeah, yeah, origin story, don't want to know a lot about that. But hey, it all turned out because you found this great family and lived happily ever after. And she argues that there ought to be a lot more transparency and awareness about the story that came before. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'd understand and approach adoption in a different way. I was just curious about what you thought of that. Well, I'm, first off, like Bucky isn't strictly adopted. He's a his his father <laughs> right? his his father abandons him for all intents and purposes. You know, his stepmother uh, Cheryl takes him in. In but that, that's not the same as adoption. But I think the where the connection really makes. We always tell our immigrant stories in that same manner. And is this idea that we are better and they are not. And that somehow um, that the, the lives outside of our borders are somehow more arduous or not as prideful or something to be proud of. <clears throat> and I don't know, like the the... The story, at least the stereotype I was always kind of fed was that, okay, where are you really from and how is that worse than here? How is it weirder than here? And how are you grateful to always come back? And so for me, when I was sitting down to write The All-American and really grappling with this, I was thinking about this idea that um, 
that I also found true is that America is not the only good place in the world. It's not the only place that, you know, good people can flourish. And the, and we're, the things that make us unique is our, I think our, our collection of values. But when you see how similar we are with other places, it's, it's, it's shocking in that like, okay, for, for example, the first time I went into rural South Korea and I was, I was just blown away by seeing a refrigerator out on a front lawn. Um, and not because <laughs> I was impressed by this, but seeing a dead car, a refrigerator and some like farm implement that I couldn't <laughs> identify looked so much like, um, rural parts of Tennessee that my, mm-hmm. that my father came from. And suddenly this discussion started, started clicking in my head that, you know, rural peoples might have a lot more in common than we would ever give, give it credit for. Um, maybe we have a lot more in common than we're willing to admit. And so whenever we get into that discussions of like, okay, we try to ignore that past story. I think whenever we ignore those past stories of adoptees or we try to diminish the past stories of immigrants, that um, the assumption that we are automatically better is, isn't, isn't right. It's not the right, it's not even the right question why did someone choose to immigrate is usually for a better material life. Um, sometimes it's, sometimes it's for certain freedoms that we, we offer, of course, but the assumption that we should ignore it or that whenever we tell those stories that we should make it as, you know, as, as a hellhole or something like that, um, or just, mm-hmm. just objectively weird, I think is really, really, really ignorant on our part. You know, you've mentioned this a couple of times, so I want to ask about it. Do you still get that question? Where are you from? No, where are you really from? Oh, of course. Um, I live in a pretty... All the time? <laughs> not all the time, because it's usually when I meet someone new. Um, but the funny thing is that it was the same in South Korea. My students used to ask me, where are you from? When you, when are you going back to your country? And that's, that's something that, that I think informed my story is that how, how we choose to identify ourselves is something that's, is not just deeply personal, but is also heavily influenced by, by things way beyond our control. I can I can say that I am just as American as anybody else, but I'm going to carry different questions regarding that authenticity of my Americanness. And it would be the same if I was living in South Korea. Um, when you, when you understand that, then you realize that identity, you have to ask the question of like, how much of our identity is something that I choose to shape versus what society informs me that I am. And there's that give and take and you're always grappling with it. And that's one of the things that really propelled me in writing this book because he believes he's a running back. That's the identity he chooses. And everyone is telling him he is not. And yet that's the thing that he holds on to. And he believes he's an American. The United States tells him that he's not. He, he, 
yet he tries to find a way through all this, like, how do you negotiate that? And I feel like the book is kind of my answer, like at least how I, how I interpret it. Can I ask, um, you teach creative writing. I do. What, <laughs> what kind of books do you assign to your students? What are they reading? Um, right now I'm teaching creative nonfiction. And so I do this silly thing of, I, I assign the best American essays for this semester. And part of the reason is uh -huh. I haven't read them and the students <laughs> haven't read them and it just uh -huh. came out. And so what I'm trying to show students is that um, when you approach, and it, it was uh, the best American um, essays this, this year was compiled by Alexander Chi and mm. they're fantastic. They are fantastic and they deal with identity and they deal with memory and they deal with all these things. But um, as a creative writer, like one of the things I am trying to teach the students is when you approach these writings, like how do you mine what are the, what are the treasures that you want to, that you want to carry um, from these things that you read? And does it tell any part of your own story that you don't, that you didn't even realize you were, that you wanted to know? Um, and so that I try to, I try to teach, teach contemporary things that I absolutely dig. Um, and I don't know, luckily I have a lot of students who are into genres that I don't know a whole lot about. Um, so for example, like fantasy, <laughs> fantasy but... and science fiction. Yeah. And so, uh -huh. um, what limited readings I do have, I try to dig up and share with them. Um, I think is, uh, Il Iliji Yoshikawa's, um, uh, Musashi series. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's completely, um, is completely commercial fic, which is, which is fine. But what makes it really good is that, um, it's a historical fiction set in like a shogunate era era of Japan and is following this uh, samurai who's absurdly, you know, superhero. And my students are always writing fight <laughs> scenes and stuff, but yeah, I, 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 I try to find, try to find stuff that is not only contemporary, but also somewhat match, um, match what my students are really gravitating toward. Yeah. Is that, so what, when it comes to fiction, you're, I mean, you've included this fantasy series, but what's the, what's the novel that you teach that maybe the students come to it and think that's going to have nothing to say to me about my life? Um, I, I think the last one, I mean, I, one book that I want to teach, I have the opportunity is Trust Exercise, because that one surprised me wonderful to be surprised after you read a lot um and be sure because um, Choi does this turn that i still don't understand why it works and whenever you're you're a writer and you see someone else do something you're like i don't know how to work it you just want to you just want to read it again um, but a story i usually start with whenever because a lot of my students try to tell me like Thing that I recently did was uh, Charles Portis's True Grit, and 
it's I it's, love that novel. I, I think I, 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 now here's here's the hill I'll die on. I believe that's that's one of our best American novels. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah, without a doubt, yeah. because when you nothing about it seems why it works. It does. <laughs> and you have this narrator who breaks every single trope of what you expect a fourteen-year-old young woman in the nineteenth century, and you have these characters all around her and they somehow do something heroic that's counterintuitive to what we thought they um, And her voice is real. Yeah. I mean, most of the time I'd think, come on, with a, you know, with a 14-year-old character that's in that situation. It's so real. Especially the negotiation with, um, I forgot his name, the, the guy who had the horses and you're, you're, you're sitting there like, Here's, it's just, it's, it's not just as good, it's beautiful. And I, I'm just, I've read plenty of Lewis and Moore books, and I mean, they're fine, they're westerns, um, and you're kind of like, okay, I know how this story's going to go. But with True Grit, it, it seems to, it seems to lie in some Venn diagram, and I don't even know all the circles anywhere. But it does something magical. It's, the only, it's one of the few books that I can just read again. Joe Mylan Jr.'s new novel is called The All-American. He's an assistant of uh, creative writing at Waldorf University in Germany's Forest City. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Kate.